welcome to another wonderful episode of Fraternity. I'm your little brother Danny, and I'm here with my big brother Sean. How's everybody doing tonight? Now this week on Fraternity, we're going modern, and we're talking about a little movie from the year 2012 called Sinister. Now this movie is from an era where I couldn't have cared less about the horror that was coming out. I felt like everything coming out at that time was either some sort of haunted house or possession flick, each derivative of the last, at least on the surface it seemed like it was. I heard titles like The Conjuring, Insidious, and Sinister, and I just looked the other way. I guess you could say Paranormal Activity started this trend, perhaps. But now that I've seen Sinister, I definitely have a new appreciation for the films that came out around this time, and will definitely be more open-minded when looking back on the early 2010s era of horror flicks. John, now why don't you give us some fond memories? Well, you're really speaking my language here, because... This was a weird time for me. This was right after Hurricane Isaac destroyed our house the first time. Before that, I was really in this period where I just needed a fresh start, and I actually gave my mom and pop VHS horror collection away. I donated it to the veterans. I still can't believe I did that, but like I said... I just really That'll needed... That'll stick with you for life. <laughs> yeah, I just really needed a new beginning, and it's kind of wonderful that I did that because not much longer after that, a majority of those films would have been destroyed in the hurricane anyway, so it's kind of nice to think that they could possibly be out there somewhere still to this day entertaining somebody. Yeah, they they have new life out there now. Yeah, and after that, we were displaced, and I ended up moving in with a coworker of mine and some of his friends, but in reality, I was on my own. One of the things I started doing was I would go do my shopping at Walmart on Tuesdays, and I'd check out the new releases, and I would pick up something that would interest me. This was before I got back into any sort of collecting. I wasn't sure if I would ever get back into it at the time. I was in a horror drought at this time. This was before I discovered Scream Factory and all the boutique labels that reinvigorated my horror spirit, so to speak. And I was this old clingy hanger-on type, and I still wasn't feeling the horror films that were coming out at that time either. But I would go look at the new release films on display, and it didn't necessarily have to be horror, but if it was, all the better. But I'd grab a film or two, and a lot like you were saying, I didn't go in for the Bloomhouse films. I didn't see Paranormal Activity. I didn't see Insidious. None of it piqued my interest either. I'm not even the biggest fan of Supernatural films, and I really wasn't that fond of found footage either. Like, look, Blair Witch was cool, but was it really that cool? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought about that too. Like, like when thinking about horror, like Supernatural isn't like at the top of my like checklist. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And at that time, 
in the 2010s supernatural horror and found footage stuff. It really got played out fast, if you ask me. But one day, I see this movie called Sinister. And on the box it says, From the producer of Paranormal Activity and Insidious. But for some reason, this one grabbed my attention. I'm a fan of Ethan Hawke, so it had that going for it. But I was really drawn in by the cover. You had the girl dragging her hand across the wall, leaving blood behind, and the blood formed this creepy visage. And then you have the title Sinister. It just seemed far more up my alley than anything they had produced before, so I decided to check this one out. And I ended up really liking this movie. On its own merits, it has this unsettling atmosphere with the whole true crime investigation vibe. And then you get some scary supernatural stuff thrown in there. And it just has this great nervous breakdown energy that really helps out. It didn't make me want to go watch the other Bloomhouse films, but I definitely found this one to be a winner. I'm sure now that we're doing this podcast that we're going to wind up watching those other films that we've mentioned sooner or later. But let's start where I did. And go through Sinister and find out what you think about this movie. But before we start, just wanted to say you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Fraternity. That's at Fraternity. Go over there, follow us, DM us, talk to us. We'd love to interact with you. We have an email, Fraternity at gmail.com. That's Fraternity at gmail.com. Send us questions, comments, anything at all. We'll read you on the podcast. And we have a YouTube channel. Go over to YouTube, type in Fraternity in the search bar. And you'll find our YouTube channel where we upload previous episodes of the show over there every Wednesday. And they have a bit of a visual treat to them. They're not just a static image. There's editing and plenty of clips to enjoy over there on YouTube. So go check that out and keep up to date with everything Fraternity is doing. The movie opens with Super 8 footage of a family of four standing underneath a tree, burlap bags over their heads and nooses have been swung around a branch and placed around their necks. We can see someone is behind the tree cutting at a limb on the other side that the rope is rigged to, and eventually that limb severs and cracks and falls, and all four of these family members are lifted into the air and hung. We don't see the perpetrator as the image becomes static and the title Sinister appears. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of this cold opening here with the hanging. It just creates such a brooding mood already, like such a striking image like you want to see where this movie is going to go now. Yeah, it definitely unsettles you right from the start. And shortly after that, we meet Ellison as he moves his family into their new house. He's married to his wife, Tracy, and they have a young son and daughter. And we're going to get a lot of heavy shit thrown at us as the film sets up Ellison here. Ellison is a true crime novelist who wrote a hit book titled Kentucky Blood a decade ago. His investigative journalism wound up uncovering overlooked details in the case that were missed by detectives, and he wound up solving this case. Since then, he's had a couple of flops where we're led to believe his investigative journalism wasn't up to snuff and may have caused some bad things to happen. We see the local sheriff is none too happy with him moving in. And a lot of this information is relayed to us when Ellison goes out to speak with this welcoming party of police. 
And the sheriff mentions that he finds this, as in moving into this house in extremely poor taste. Because he's referring to the fact that Ellison has moved into the house where that family was hung in the backyard. And Ellison is keeping this information away from the rest of his family. But I love that reveal as he looks out in the backyard and we do see that same tree from the opening. And it's like, oh shit, time for some haunted house shenanigans. Yeah, through this first half of the film, I love how the tree plays a nice background role because you see it when they're sitting at the dinner table and really good stuff. And hey, technically he did not lie to his wife. She just asked the wrong question. But we're going to learn more about Ellison. Like, he really isn't doing this out of a sense of justice. He craves that fame and notoriety and success that he achieved all those years ago when he did Kentucky Blood. It's like, at one point he even says, I just need another hit. And it's funny to kind of relate fame and money as his drug, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of subtext within the film about Ellison's true desire as we go back and forth and we wonder like is he really doing this for his family or is he just really doing it for himself and like his wife said trying to chase that 15 minutes that he'll never get back you know his time was already up yeah he's been chasing that dragon and it's becoming clear that his wife is done with it and this is it if this isn't his next break it's over So she's juggling his addictive hunt for his next big hit while taking care of the children and protecting them from Ellison's morbid work. And we see Ellison enter the attic to place some boxes up there and he gets startled by a scorpion of all things and he smushes it under this box. But when he drops this box, it dislodges one of the floorboards where Ellison discovers a box labeled Home Movies that has a projector and a bunch of Super 8 reels. He takes the box to his office, and we are off on our morbid journey. So this movie is almost two hours long, and we are going to spend a lot of time with Ellison in his office examining these tapes. These tapes, though, are creepy, they're brutal, We even get a moment where he considers calling the police since for all intents and purposes he's discovered new crimes here. But his quest for that hit overrides that kind of thinking. And he's going to pursue this himself. Yeah, these scenes where Ellison is going through the Super 8 footage and watching each of the films creates a really nice loop within the film where we're with Ellison experiencing all this for the first time and it's great because you see his reaction to the films and he also has that intrigue to watch it again and then creepy haunted house stuff happens and then he watches another film and so it's a really nice loop in this first half of the film where we're going on this journey through it all and I find it really exciting. Yeah, you know, like I said, it's two hours long and we're going to spend a lot of time with Ellison in his office watching these videos, but it actually moves fast, I thought. It's got great pacing as we're slowly uncovering what's really going on. And the mystery feels very fresh. We want to know what happens next and what more information Ellison can find out. 
Yeah, to me, I think that's what really separates this one from other supernatural films is you're already creeped out by this whole true crime aspect to this movie. And I think that really sells the whole experience for me. I also read that the movie was inspired by a nightmare that the co-writer had after watching The Ring. Now, I don't know if you've seen The Ring, but that video in The Ring really creeped me the fuck out. I'll own up to that. And I think these Super 8 home movies pretty much achieved that same level of creep factor. And then you have the soundtrack that plays over these sequences. They're skin crawling. Like, they make your skin crawl, you know? Yeah, I have not seen The Ring, but I did read that about how this film was inspired by The Nightmare. And yeah, the Super 8 films, like, you know, they're snuff films, and they really feel gritty and realistic, and that's why they're just so... That's why we're so captured by it. And yeah, the soundtrack is really one of my favorite parts of this movie, if I'm being honest. and. I looked up who did it, and of course, it's Christopher Young, who deserves all the praise. He's done great work in countless other horror films, and this is some of his best work right here. Definitely incredible soundtrack. But why don't we discuss the Super 8 footage in the order that Ellison watches them? So each video is labeled with an inconspicuous title. They always start off harmless enough. The first video he watches is titled Family Hanging Out 2011. This winds up being the Stevenson family who were killed in the backyard of the house that Ellison just moved his family into. And we see them playing in the backyard before it cuts to the hanging we witnessed at the beginning of the film. We're always left to wonder who shot this footage. And the murderer is never revealed. After watching this video, Ellison starts pouring himself a stiff drink before returning to it and analyzing it while taking notes. You would think that Ellison might turn in for the night after this shocking turn of events, but he dives in head first. <laughs> yeah, I really love that we see how affected he is by it. And yeah, he goes to grab something to drink, but then he turns it right back on and is really going on this investigation to find out what really happened and getting all these breadcrumbs here and there. It's really fun. The next tape is titled Barbecue 79, and we see the Martinez family on a fishing trip. We then see them tied up in the car inside their garage, and the car has been chained shut and gas cans are visible near the bodies laying inside the car. An unseen assailant sets the car ablaze, and we see it shake back and forth as the tied up occupants writhe around inside. But once again, Danny, and I don't think we've mentioned this. The one thing these crimes all have in common is the youngest family member is missing. That's what ties all these separate crimes together is that the youngest child in the family is missing. And we have no idea where they are. And that's where the mystery is. You want to know who this killer is? You want to know where these kids went? Yeah, and it's after this video that Ellison calls the cops before thinking better of it and hanging up. There's a great bit where the dispatch officer is on the other end of the line, but Ellison doesn't speak up because he's looking at his Kentucky blood books and the gears start turning in his brain and he hangs up. He, can't, he doesn't want to give up 
this chance, you know, if he can have another hit, he's going to go for it no matter what. Yeah. And he goes to watch another reel when he hears a loud bang in the house and he looks around this dark house and you can hear the floorboards in the attic creaking as if someone's up there. But Ellison starts to approach a cardboard box and it begins to move ever so slightly. And suddenly his son Trevor emerges from the box and screams this inhuman scream. We learn that Trevor has been suffering from night terrors for quite some time. So yeah, that was a weird and creepy way to end up wrapping the night, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, decent jump scare. It feels a little bit cheap to be like, oh, it's just a night terror. He's just in this box screaming. But I've never had a night terror, so maybe that really is how it is. We get to see a film, and then we get some creepy stuff happening in the house. But these early scenes, it's usually a little bit of a false scare, especially here with Trevor in the box. We get a brief family breakfast scene before Tracy takes the kids to school and goes to run some errands, leaving Ellison alone to get back to the work. And he seems pretty eager to jump right back in. And all the while, that tree is looming in the background, Danny. We immediately see the reel labeled Pool Party 66. And we see this family having fun in their pool before we cut to night. And we see that same family all duct taped to reclining lounge chairs. Rope has been tied to each chair and someone on the opposite side of the pool tugs these chairs into the water. And we can see feet of the first victim kicking as other family members are yanked in. And if things weren't eerie enough, we catch a glimpse of this inhuman entity looking up from under the water towards the camera. It's an unsettling image, and it's one sinister person, you could say. (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts on the first glimpse here of this sinister fellow? Again, it's this little breadcrumb that's like, oh man, who is that? He looks scary. I want to find out who this guy is. I want Ellison to do more investigating into it. And obviously, Ellison is taken aback by the figure that he sees in the film because he immediately watches it again and then pauses it where we get a good look at this figure. But then the film starts to burn. (laughs) Yeah, spontaneous Film combustion, Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like how at this point, Ellison realizes he better go ahead and digitally record these reels before he somehow loses another one. Yeah, I like that he's learning along the way, too. You know, it really feels like we're there with him. You know, he's like, you know, I should record this footage digitally so I can just put it on my laptop. And then he has to look up how to splice Super 8 film and goes through that. So I like these little moments. Yeah, it's cool. And he tries his best to salvage what he can from Pool Party 66, but the image of the figure has been lost. And just like that, the family returns home and Trevor and Mommy are having a bit of drama because it turns out that at school, Trevor drew an image of four people hanging from a tree on the whiteboard with a permanent marker. And Tracy, as she does through a lot of this movie, just flips her shit on Ellison. She doesn't appreciate the way that his work affects the family. And Ellison just seems more relieved that the fact that the family still doesn't know they're in the house where the murders took place. Like, that seems to be his only concern. 
Right. Yeah, this is the first of many arguments in the film between Ellison and Tracy. And I love that they're like half shouting at each other. Like both of them are just kind of keeping it at bay a little, you know, and arguments like this are really hard to capture and film and be believable. But these moments between Elsa and Tracy are up there with the greats, in my opinion. It doesn't feel tacked on or unnecessary. It really all adds up into making Ellison dive deeper and act more irrationally. But Tracy can already kind of see through Ellison's facade and can tell that he's hiding something. Bad things happen to good people, Danny, and they deserve to have their stories told. Family be damned, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Later that night, Ellison returns to his videos and we watch Sleepy Time 98. And what we get in this video is some first-person stalking through a house. We enter a bedroom and find the parents tied to their beds. We see them have their throats slit. And then this intruder enters the bedroom of a young boy who too has his throat slit, but Ellison can't bear to watch this one. There's a nice touch here where we actually see the throat slices reflected in Ellison's glasses instead of directly seeing them on the screen. Yeah, I thought... Only seeing the throat slits in the reflection of his glasses was a really unique way to sell the kills. And again, makes it feel like a real snuff film. And yeah, that moment where Ellison turns away as he can't watch the young boy get his throat slit and the camera goes out of focus just makes the whole package feel much more heinous. Yeah, we also graduate from pouring stiff drinks to taking swigs straight from the bottle, Danny. <laughs> Never a good sign in a film. <laughs> yeah. Another significant detail in this video is it's the first video where we notice the occult symbol on the wall. And Ellison prints this frame on his computer before hearing some sounds coming from within the house again. And then the power goes out and Ellison goes to inspect the noises coming from the attic. And with knife and flashlight in hand, he enters the attic and ends up discovering pictures that are clearly drawn by children. Each one is a basic drawing of one of the crime scenes. Stick figures with names in the place where the victims were located on the video. But in each image, another stick figure appears with the name Mr. Boogie. Who's Mr. Boogie? I just want to know. I want to find out. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah, Ellison inspects these images some more. And then hears a noise and goes to inspect it, but he ends up falling through the roof. And the next time we see him, we've got EMS bandaging him up in the kitchen. And this is where we meet Deputy So-and-So. You see, this officer of the law is a fan of Ellison. He asks for an autograph, but he's forgot his copy of Kentucky Blood. And in Ellison's office, he explains how in the book, in the acknowledgments, he always thanks people who help his investigation. And he tells Ellison that he could be that guy for him. I'm not sure if I'm biased, but I am a fan of this actor, James Ransone. Uh, he plays a major character in the second season of The Wire, and he's really good in that. But the deputy scenes are a nice bit of brevity, and there's enough payoff for all his screen time in the end, I think. I also saw that he's the lead in Sinister 2, but... That's a different show. Yeah, this deputy, he's a goof, but he's likable. And honestly, I'm just glad you didn't say lost. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Ellison takes the opportunity to get deputy so-and-so on his side. 
to get some information on these videos for him, like locations and things of that nature. But before the night ends, we see Ellison watching this tape of an old interview where he jokes about writing for fame and money. But we know that's not really a joke. And when this interviewer asks him what feels better, the justice or being number one on the New York Times bestsellers list, we see him lie and say he's more about the justice. Yeah, we almost believe that Ellison could make a change for the better here and do it for the justice of it all. But in the end, he's doing it for the fame. He's doing it for the money and the big house. Yeah, it's funny to watch him jokingly lie and then outright lie in the video. And we can see by Ellison's reaction that this monkey on his back has been taking quite a toll on him. And despite his desire to write another blockbuster, I think the expansion of this case and the sinister turn is not helping him. Also, great job making Ethan Hawke look younger. And that whole look to the video, too, making it look old. Good stuff. I kind of forgot how layered and not cut and dry his character actually was. Like, he definitely has a lot of flaws, and I applaud it for not having him just be the hero type, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It really takes the movie into further places when you have a deep character like Ellison. You just care more about everything when the characters are good. Yeah, the next day, we're going to start putting pieces of this puzzle together as Ellison goes through the pictures and matches the videos up in order to find Mr. Boogie. And he finds him all right, and it's creepy. (laughs) I wouldn't go so far as to say Mr. Boogie is some amazing character design, but I think what works for it is it's just sinister enough, it's just creepy enough, just unnatural and unexplainable enough to get under your skin. Mr. Boogie is fine. I think he works better as like a symbol in these blurry screenshots. I feel like the more clearer image and picture we get of him, the less cool he kind of becomes. He's good. He's not my favorite design. I think it could be improved in places, but in these early parts of the movie where we just get a glimpse of him, I think it's really good. Yeah, one cool moment is when Deputy So-and-so calls to give Ellison some information, and there's this still image of Mr. Boogie on the laptop, and it comes to life and turns its head to look at Ellison. Good little scare here. Yeah, love that moment. What we also learn from Deputy So-and-so is that the most recent family that got murdered lived in the same house as the victims before them, before moving to where Ellison is now living. Ellison then scans over some footage of himself in the basement, where we see these ghostly hands wrapping around his body. Startles him, and I gotta admit, it kind of startled me. (laughs) (laughs) They're tiny hands, not just ghostly. Ghostly tiny hands. (laughs) Oh man, is there anything worse? So we start to get this trend here where every night when Ellison goes to sleep, he's awoken by the sound of the projector and we're not sure how it's turned on. One of the images of Mr. Boogie is during the hanging. We can see him in the bushes that are now in Ellison's backyard. So he goes to look outside and is startled when we see a person, possibly Mr. Boogie, standing out there. And Ellison goes out there with a baseball bat, but winds up finding Trevor in the bushes, suffering from another night terror. Nice little twist there. (laughs) 
So yeah, the trend in the second half of the film is going to be as Ellison goes to sleep, he hears the projector and wakes up. And it gets a little redundant for me at times. I feel like the first time I watched it, I was I was definitely down for the darker parts. But I don't know, I found myself missing the more detective aspect of it on this rewatch. So I definitely think the first half of the film is stronger, but there's still a lot of good moments here in the second half. Right, yeah. We've had some strange noises in the house and a few bits of walking around the dark house, but we're about to enter a more obvious spooky supernatural occurrences in the house segment, and that's fine. I think it works, but I think I'd have to agree that I think the first half is a bit stronger. I also mentioned earlier how this film also has some great nervous breakdown energy. Mm -hmm. And before this night ends, we get a scene where Tracy confronts Ellison and he overenthusiastically explains how he's onto something bigger than ever before. He makes it very obvious that he's in it for the money and all the fame and the glory and Tracy just isn't hearing any of it. The next day, Deputy So-and-so delivers more information to the house. He informs Ellison that he may be a small-town cop, but he knows a series of connected murders when he sees them. And he's willing to keep a lid on things for Ellison, but he wants to be more in on the loop. So we get a rundown of what we know so far. Our twosome are still operating in the realm of the real here. The problem is that these killings are spread out over such a long period of time it would make our killer very old at this point. Not to say that it's impossible, but it does seem improbable. Yeah, and we're going to get more exposition, too, in this back end of the film about the killings and Mr. Boogie. And it serves the film just fine, but I do think we lose a bit of mystique that we had in the first half. Yeah, Deputy So-and-So is also startled by the occult symbols. And he suggests that Ellison contact someone at the university about that. And it winds up being old Vinny D, Danny, in a webcam <laughs> cameo that's uncredited. Did not expect Vincent D'Onofrio to appear in this film, but he does a really good job. It was cool to see him here. Yeah, before we get to see Vincent D'Onofrio, though, we get to watch the last home movie. It's very brief and titled Yardwork 86. We see someone start a lawnmower and walk it through the yard before we're startled by the sight of someone laying in the grass and clearly getting run over by the lawnmower and killed by the blades. We don't get to see the payoff, but it comes out of nowhere and has one of the most menacing stings ever to drive home the point. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. One of the best jump scares I've seen in a while. I love how shocked Ellison is. Like, he's scared too, just as much as the audience is. <laughs> just a wonderful sequence. It's probably the best freakout since Joaquin Phoenix saw the alien in signs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that this does have that same energy. Totally. <laughs> yeah, and I don't care how many times you've seen this movie. That stinger, you can't avoid it. It's gonna make you jump a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's just... So loud, so out of nowhere, and it's one of those ones where you can't predict it, and it's great. Oh yeah, really good stuff there. So here's what we learn from the occult specialist, Professor Jonas. 
The symbols in the video are associated with the worship of an obscure pagan deity named Bagul, the eater of children. It's said that he lures children into his netherworld, and there's Did a you say eater, eater of children. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, because Ellison is like, "Did you say eater?" And then <laughs> Jonas is like, "Yeah, of children." <laughs> <laughs> they also mentioned this need for blood sacrifice, so I'm guessing that's the kills. And after this revelation. Ellison is awoken once again by the running projector. But this time as he walks through the dark house, we start to see the ghosts of these missing children hiding just out of his view all around the house. This is a pretty cool scene here. Is it my favorite scene in the film? No. But I think it's effectively creepy and I like to think about how they probably shot this and how these real child actors are right there and Ethan Hawke is just pretending not to see them you know well this scene is probably my favorite haunted house scene of the film because it's less about the jump scare and more about how the scene flows with ellison not aware of the ghost of the children right behind him at every turn you know some of these haunted house scenes they can definitely be a little on the dark side and i'm not talking tone i'm talking visually and if you aren't in the utmost perfect viewing experience, you know, at night, lights off, they can lose a little bit of their weight. But this one here, I think it stays good no matter where you see it. So I'm a fan of it. And we get that good final sting as we see Ashley has drawn Bagul on her walls and is beginning to succumb to his lure. Oh, yeah. That's creepy when. He looks in on his kids and he thinks they're asleep, but we see that Ashley is wide awake and the little girl is staring at her. Oh, yeah, that creeped me out, man. <laughs> so Ellison winds up passing out on the couch, and upon waking up the next morning, he decides to have a chat about these strange occurrences with Deputy So-and-so, and he makes it clear that he doesn't believe in the supernatural or paranormal or whatever you want to call it. Deputy so-and-so is like, of course you don't, or you wouldn't be living here. <laughs> <laughs> I like when he makes the point, like, I would never stay one night in this damn house, dude. Are you fucking crazy? Ellison's like, so you don't believe in, uh, you know, all that supernatural stuff. And Deputy so-and-so is like, uh, are you kidding? <laughs> I wouldn't be in here at all. <laughs> <laughs> he does make the points, though, that Ellison is under a lot of stress and the case is taking a very dark turn, one he probably wasn't prepared for. And he's also drinking. He makes astute observations for him to kind of calm him down a little bit. But the situation in the house deteriorates further when Ashley paints a picture of the missing girl in the hall, and when she explains herself, it becomes clear to Tracy that they are in fact living in the crime scene house, and she's going to have it out with Ellison here now. Yeah, we get this huge argument between Ellison and Tracy, and everything comes to a head here. I love when he tries to rationalize the situation by saying they didn't die in the house, they died in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love how rightfully pissed off Tracy is, yet Ellison, like, has a response for everything she throws at him. You know, like, he almost planned this exact argument and everything she was gonna say. Yeah, this is a great back and forth between them two, and like you said, they do such a good job. I love when she says, do you have any idea what you've done to your family? He's like, yes, I do! You know? (laughs) I know! I know, like, Elson tries so hard to, like, keep it together, but we do get these little bits of where he just can't take it, and the steam just pops off, and he starts yelling at her. (laughs) Oh, man, really good stuff from both actors here. I do feel bad for Tracy having to struggle to keep the family together and having to shoulder all that Ellison's work brings to the table. But I do feel for Ellison on some levels, too, because he says writing gives his life meaning and that it's his legacy. And, you know, everybody wants that. But Tracy has that perfect response back where she says, your kids are your legacy. Your kids are what gives your life meaning. (laughs) It's like neither party is right nor wrong. It's just airing out all these grievances that have been way past the boiling point and after tracy rightfully rips into him she finds him dozed off later that night watching another vintage interview and in this one we see him espousing his then newfound fondness of having a family and children so that's an interesting little bit there and she wakes him up and takes him to bed where he's once again startled awake by the sound of the projector But this time he walks through the house and he climbs up into the attic and he finds the ghosts of the missing children all sitting there in the attic watching the home movies. They turn their heads to him and hold their fingers over their lips as Bagul appears on the screen. And suddenly Bagul's face appears right in front of Ellison and startles him, causing him to fall down to the floor. And then the projector and tapes are tossed down to him. And this is the final straw, Danny, because Ellison gathers it all up, takes it to the backyard, and sets that shit on fire. (laughs) And Tracy finds him out there, and Ellison is manic, and he's like, pack some shit, get the kids, we gotta go! (laughs) Go! (laughs) Like I said, fantastic nervous breakdown energy. And great music here, too. Like, I love this little beat that goes when they're like, getting everything together and getting the hell out of there yeah so the song that plays during this part where elson is destroying the footage is gyroscope by boards of canada and boards of canada were the first electronic band that i really got into you know it's funny last week we were celebrating metal and this week at least for me we're celebrating electronic music because The sounds and textures that Boards of Canada capture in their music absolutely inspired this film's score, I feel. And I think there's a reason that this song by them is in the film, too. Uh, The album that this song comes from, Geogaddy, has plenty of eerie tracks, just as good as this one, and it's definitely one of my favorite albums. Now, it's great that Boards of Canada is being used in a horror film, but true fans of the band will know that this isn't the first time. Their song Beware the Friendly Stranger was used in the popular Flash series Salad Fingers way back in 2004. 
If you know, you know. But just had to nerd out a bit. Well, I don't know. What I do know is I, <laughs> I've had some Boards of Canada albums in my day. It's been a long time, but uh, I did not know that was their track. But now I'm going to have to go listen to it after this. <laughs> yeah, really great stuff. And I was really happy to see that their music was used in something horror related because I always felt like they should be in a horror film. Awesome. So it was wisely mentioned earlier that Ellison and Tracy hadn't been able to sell the old house. So that's where they're going to go. And Ellison is attempting to put all of this behind him as fast as possible. We see him avoiding Deputy So-and-So's calls, but he then receives an email full of Bagul images sent from Professor Jonas. So he video calls him and they discuss the images before Professor Jonas tells Ellison that the images of Bagul were usually destroyed because the images themselves were believed to be gateways into his realm and would cause people who saw them to do terrible things, especially children who saw them, Danny, because you know what Bagul is, right? The eater of children. Come on, <laughs> come on, man. Did you say eater? Yes, I think, I hope. <laughs> so Ellison, having burnt the footage, decides to delete all the files on the computer. But as he goes to put some boxes away, he discovers the box of home movies have followed him, Danny. Not only are the reels and the projector restored, but this time there's an envelope labeled the Snyder Cut, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> the Bagul Cut. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's labeled Extended Cut Endings, and it's sitting inside the box. And Ellison can't not check this out, right? <laughs> it should be stated that Ellison really did seem like he wanted to turn it all around and get rid of all this Bagul crap and just really focus on his family here. But it's too late. And yeah, he cannot resist finding out what's on those extended cuts. Yeah, we watch him splice the reels back together. He finally answers Deputy So-and-So's calls. And Deputy So-and-So informs Ellison that through his own investigation, he's discovered that all of the families lived in the house of a previous victim before they moved, and then they were murdered. So by moving, Ellison has just put himself next in line. Pretty good twist. It raises a couple questions, though. How aware were the other families of this footage in the house? Seems like you have to watch the films for Bagul's influence to work. We know why Ellison gets involved, because he's trying to uncover the mystery behind the tapes, but we don't really get any of that explanation with the rest of the victims. Do any of these questions matter or add anything to the story? Probably not, but it just got me thinking. <laughs> Fair questions. Once we get to see the extended cuts, though, of the home movies, we learn that the youngest children of each family were the culprits who murdered their own family members. One after another, we see these children approach the camera and make the hush gesture before disappearing. As Ellison watches this, he finds himself getting drowsy, and he looks into his glass, and it looks like someone's put highlighter fluid in there. <laughs> I don't know what is in that cup, but it's glowing in the dark, so maybe it's highlighter fluid? I don't know. Can that poison you <laughs> or knock you out? I don't know what it is, but... He notices a note that reads, 
Good night, Daddy. And now the story is coming full circle. Yeah, I have to ask, did you really see this coming? And if so, or at all, did you have an idea of which kid it would be? And were you surprised by who it is? I did see this ending coming. I wasn't sure which kid that was going to end up being the killer, because they do kind of set up the son as this kind of darker kid. He's got long hair, and he has these night terrors. But then that just makes him an obvious choice. So of course it's going to be the other child. But I think by this point, I kind of expected it to be the daughter. But it was still a really nice reveal and still exciting to see. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think Trevor is just too obviously a red herring. But yeah, we see Ashley standing there thanking her dad for making the movies better. She likes them better with the Snyder Cut intact. (laughs) and i hope the movies weren't four hours long (laughs) oh no unfortunately snyder's made a horror movie danny i need help (laughs) i can't wait to do that one no i'm just counting the days oh man (laughs) so ellison wakes up bound and gagged on the floor of his living room And we see an axe-wielding and camera-toting Ashley enter the frame. We also notice a few cups nearby, as we can see Tracy and Trevor unconscious on the other side of the room. And Ashley tells Daddy, Don't worry, I'll make you famous, Daddy. Ooh, what a stinger! (laughs) That one had to hurt. Oh yeah, he knew, man. You know he knew. And the next thing we see is Super 8 footage of the hallways where it becomes clear that Ashley has gathered her family's blood and painted all over the walls with it like she would do in her bedroom. There's bloody horses and kitty cats and bagul symbols. Good stuff. We then see all the other children approaching from the other end of the hall before we pan out and see that Ashley is watching her own home movie. The children watch as she draws her own stick figure crime scene. Ashley then approaches the screen and stares back at the children. They tilt their heads to the side, and she responds in kind. But as Ashley tilts her head, we see Bagul standing behind her. The children run off in fright as Bagul scoops Ashley up, and the two of them are transported into the image on the screen. He carries her down the hallway before they both simply disappear. We then see the box of home movies with the new film canister labeled House Painting 12 inside. And Bagul gives us one final jump scare before we cut to black. And that's the end of our movie. You know, personally, I wish we got a kill a little more creative for the Oswalt family. But the blood painting all over the walls is a nice payoff and is a really cool image so eh, i'm half and half with it but a really great ending to a great movie all right man so what are your final thoughts on sinister sinister is a modern horror flick that tells a unique story it's got a haunted house it's got possession it's got investigation it's got jump scares for days at the center of it all is a story about a writer who is struggling and grasping for those glory days while also trying to keep his family together. And really, without that, 
I think the film would fall apart, but it all works really well together. I love the use of the Super 8 films and how it ties into the story and it isn't just visual fluff, it has meaning to be there. The soundtrack for this film is stellar, it's got great performances, especially by Ethan Hawke and Juliet Rylance who plays Tracy. Definitely check it out. Don't have a bias like me and Sean and think modern horror is shit, okay? Don't let this one pass you by. Definitely check out Sinister. Well said, Danny. Awesome. Well, we're not going to do favorite kill tonight. We're going to do favorite home movie. So do you have a favorite home movie, Danny? I do. But before I give my favorite, I have to shout out my honorable mention for my favorite movie, if you don't mind. Sure. Go ahead. So I got to give an honorable mention to Pool Party 66. I really did want to pick it. And if there's a favorite kill in the film, it would be this. Because being pulled into a pool while you're strapped to a pool chair that's weighed down with bricks is just a frightening thought. So that one can be my favorite kill. But my favorite movie in the film is Barbecue 79. I think Barbecue 79 really showcases how far a well-fitting song can make a scene just ascend into greatness. You know, this barbecue looks to be all fun and games, but we have this somber piano playing, and it just tells us that something's lurking beneath. Something evil. I love that hard transition, both in visuals and in audio, as we see the family tied up in the car, and then the car bursts into flames, and we see the car start to move as the family members are writhing in the car trying to get out. You know, here on Fraternity, we love a good car explosion. But here, the fire and the car together are just frightening. And the people inside are burning alive, trying as they might to get out, but they just can't. And it blends all together to make a really wonderful scene. Great choice. I mean, all of these home movies are good. But yeah, barbecue, excellent choice. So how about you? What's your favorite movie in the film? Well, I did pick Pool Party 66, Danny. (laughs) Nice. And I think it's interesting because you gave that honorable mention because the kills in this one are gnarly, right? But what intrigued me most when you were talking about barbecue was how you were talking about how the music builds the scene. And as well shot and well done pool party 66 is what interests me the most is how was this done because you have these actors tied to these chairs and then they're yanked into the water i don't know if some of these were dummies but you have the first one that goes in and their chair is kind of tilted and their feet are still sticking out of the water and kicking And then the next one who gets yanked in immediately like turns sideways and just sinks to the bottom. And I don't know how they did this. I want to know how they did this. (laughs) However they did this, they pulled it off wonderfully. You know, I wanted to know like, are there scuba people underneath there like giving them oxygen or what? What's going on? How was this made? That's so funny because I had the same thoughts too. Like I was like, man, clearly they're still moving while they're under there. I want to know how this one's filmed too. Yeah, I I think it's one of the most fascinating scenes looking at it from a filmmaking perspective. 
There's a lot of magic. There's a lot to think of behind the curtain of this one. And you get the first look at Bagul under the water. And that is one of the scariest images of him. Barbecue has a great image of Bagul also. But nothing beats that first glimpse of not only are you seeing this weird inhuman figure, but they're standing at the bottom of the pool looking up through the water at you. And that's really weird and ominous. <laughs> yeah, that first look of Bagul is a really strong moment in the entire film. And so, yeah, like I said, I had to give an honorable mention to Pool Party because it's just up there with barbecue for me. So awesome choice. Cool. Well, how about a favorite scene, Danny? And then we can go hang out. Well, my favorite scene in Sinister has to be when Ellison watches Family Hanging Out 11 for the first time. Again, I'll reiterate that I love that we witness the whole footage with Ellison here. We get to see his reaction. We're sitting with him, watching it together. We see how affected by it he is after watching immediately grabbing a drink, but he's also intimately curious about the film that he just watched, and he chooses to watch it again, horror and all. And I found that it parallels our own love with horror. You know, we're disgusted, scared, mesmerized by what we watch in the horror community, but we still love it, and we yearn for more. And that's what I got out of this scene. I do think these quiet moments with Ellison in the first half of the film are where it really shines and it's so well paced and so well done. So that is going to be my favorite scene from Sinister. Well, my favorite scene is where Ellison first watches the home movies also. And it's not that it happens every time, but the first time I watched this movie... And the first time I watched it now, after not seeing it in almost a decade, this sequence manages to give me anxiety and make me nervous. I think the home movies are probably the best part of the film. That's not to knock the rest, but these things are incredible. Just like how you think of the Rings video. These manage the same amount of memorability and scare factor. And... The movie does a good job of not putting you in the shoes of Ellison, but taking you on this journey with him. I think of it like a roller coaster. For me, the most anxious and scary moments of a roller coaster are during the initial lift hill. I'm always anxious at the start, but once we get over the hill and the ride begins, I sort of settle in and just enjoy it. And it's the same thing here. As much as I like enjoying the ride, the real thrill is that anxiety and those butterflies. And it's very rare that a film draws that out of me. But those home movies manage to accomplish it somehow. So I'm very thankful that I get those sensations from this because that's the real treat that brings people to horror time and time again. And sadly, I don't get that full experience, but I get a little bit of it here with these home movies. Well said. Yeah, I totally agree. The home movies are kind of the backbone of the entire film and really make it work and pull it all together. So that was Sinister. Great movie. Had fun talking about it. Hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about it. Hope you enjoy the movie as much as we do. And we'll be right back at it again next week. We hope you come along for the ride with us. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good night. <laughs>